Hymn number 21, we were asked to mark as the song of encouragement, the song of invitation tonight. And certainly how well we each could echo those sentiments of welcome that Roger issued to each of us. What a lovely opportunity God has indeed given us with health, with disposition of heart and mind, and with the opportunity that we've had to enjoy not only His creation this day, but to assemble as the shades of it gather about us, and to offer to Him, the one who made it all, the sincere worship of our heart. Perhaps we could recall one of those statements found in the psalmist in Psalm 119, verses 15 and 16. The psalmist on that occasion said, I will meditate in his precepts and have respect unto thy ways. I will delight myself also in thy statutes. I will not forget thy word. Perhaps as that is a charge, an apt one that we might employ for each of us this week to meditate in his precepts and to not forget his word. Tonight we come to another consideration of some of the matters of the biblical translations that we've considered for a few weeks now. And over the course of that time, a number of matters have come before us, not the least of which are some of these. We noted the power latent in the Word of God. And as we began the series, we came to appreciate that that is the only power of God unto salvation, Romans 1.16. And as we consider the characteristics of the human family as they have produced translations and various versions... It continues to remind us of the weighty responsibility that rests upon those to handle aright the sacred and wonderful Word of God. Along the way, we've looked at a number of particular translations, and I've just briefly used their uh, an acronymic names there. And as you can see near the bottom of that list, at least a part of last Sunday evening's lesson was one we looked at in part, in at least then, and we'll revisit at least part of it tonight because of the technical difficulties that got in my way last, last time. I hope, though, that as you look at some of them, we certainly won't revisit all of that lesson, but at least just to point out some of what I was hoping to illustrate then. And it's my sincere hope that it should work tonight. I tried it uh, very feverishly, and it, it appeared to work fine. We'll see if it does in just a moment. One of the first comments, though, that we made on that previous occasion had to do with, in fact, the very characteristics of what the original text and autographs in either Greek or Hebrew would have appeared like or what they would have looked like. And I thought we'd begin again with an Old Testament one in Jeremiah 1 verse 9, where on that occasion as God commissioned Jeremiah, it was to him that and see, God touched his mouth and he said, Behold, I've put my words in thy mouth. That to you and me seems as if the power of that verse is so easily appreciated. And here's where we'll see if it works. It looks like it actually came through this time. The very top line up there is fully in Hebrew, and that's the completeness, the entirety of Jeremiah 1, verse number 9. It looks amazingly brief, doesn't it? The entirety of that verse and simply that top line on that slide. Now, at least for myself, I'm unable to read Hebrew, but yet that is Hebrew. You'll notice that there are spaces located in the, in the actual letters, so there are spaces between the words. But if you're close enough to actually see, you'll notice Hebrew has a different tactical way of expressing many particular thoughts. There are little dots quite often positioned either above or below, or there are pin strokes positioned below. 
I would submit that that helps us each appreciate the singular importance of each and every one of those strokes. If you change one of the strokes, you change the word. You change perhaps its thrust or the particular context that would give it its fullest appreciation. And doesn't that remind us of one of the comments that Jesus made when He said, one, Not one jot or tittle shall in any wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. That famous utterance of our Lord in Matthew 5, verses 17 and 18. Among the letters there, one of them most likely is the jot. Or one of them at least would be related to the tittle. A small stroke of the pen used to distinguish one word in Hebrew from another. One letter, if you please, from another. But as you looked with that with me again last week, that's what we were unable to see. In terms of the New Testament though... You might also notice with me that one of the comments that was made that may seem exceedingly strange to us is in fact this one. And it was on the previous slide, I think. And it was that New Testament statement made there at the bottom where on so many occasions some of the oldest of the manuscripts that have been discovered and found were written in such a way that this particular second example on that slide will actually indicate it. It is the second line from the top that actually is written in Greek. Fully in Greek and you'll notice all the letters are capital. They're the capital of the Greek letters. But this time, something that appears exceedingly unusual is that there are no spaces in that anywhere. All the letters are capitalized and there are no spaces in the words. In other words, one word flows directly into the next one with no space to distinguish them. You can well imagine some of the earliest individuals and groups who attempted to make those translations and the effort that they had and the benefit that ultimately recognized the nature of the wordings themselves and put the respective spaces within them. That brings it to the third line on that slide. You'll also notice one other thing. It too is in Greek, but this time the letters are lowercase Greek letters. It seems as if it didn't take too long for the benefit of the lowercase letters to be recognized. And as you can see, that particular verse, I didn't tell you which particular passage those were. That second one there is John chapter 1 verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All of that is again that second line. That third line comes from Galatians chapter 3. You'll notice it too has spaces within it as you and I can now see. And probably some of the words in that, you and I at least with a small bit of effort could begin to recognize. In fact, if we point out just a few of them, let me get my pointer. I meant to bring that with me. The fourth word in this one is the word for God, theos. And when we hear that word as it's presented, at least in various verses, that of course is that word that represents in the New Testament that character of God. Further along, let's perhaps try another one. 
Christos, Christ. You probably can begin to see at least some of the similarities. That first letter looks like an X is actually the Greek letter called Chi. And in fact, it's pronounced K as if it's a CH kind of pronunciation. And so indeed, that's the word for the Christ. Further along in that verse, you probably can begin to see yet another occurrence of one much like. number of similarities. You again see it begins the same way. It seems as if the major difference is, is the ending. Greek, of course, would have an ending that pinned it to the particular place in the language it was providing. For instance, the tense might well be different. In fact, if we think about the reading of that word, that verse reads as follows, "...for ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus." For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Take it from Galatians 3, beginning in verse 26. And so now looking back to that, that first word is children. That fourth word is God. As we've learned, children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. That word for faith comes from this one. we appreciate it, there's where that word baptize occurs in that particular passage. But to say all that is to say, there is the Greek rendering, or at least the original Greek as it presented the text of that passage, and one would then need, lead, uh, carefully appreciate the need to handle that rightly and to translate that in the way that one could see the full meaning and what was intended by God to be understood and obeyed. Two other passages that we looked at last week, which also I was unable to show you then. One of those is Galatians 1 verse 22. In fact, that's the fourth one on that particular slide. And we had looked at it from the following various appreciations. We noticed a few issues and a few matters of appreciation as we looked at some of the ways that that verse was handled by several of the, other, of the translations before us. And then finally, we noticed that bottom one also was a very useful consideration for us in a number of ways last, Wednesday, or last Sunday evening. It too was one that allows, uh, allowed us to appreciate several things about the way the Greek text appears. I would ask you to notice in terms of both of them that there again seemed to be the critical usage of the spaces between the words. Now, those who might be interested in noting the places from which I got these, those who have access to some of the Greek text are probably familiar with the phrase Nestle Alond, which is the recognized presentation, shall we say, in a modern way of the Greek text. These are taken from the 26th edition of the Nestle Alond Greek New Testament. And so if you happen to have opportunity to read or look into that, again, it should correspond exactly in these verses that I have used from, again, the 26th edition of the Nestle Alon text. Without rehearsing, again, all that we had looked at on the previous occasion, we did recognize a few of these ideas. That work of translation, to handle rightly these passages... Not only was, of course, an exceedingly important work, placing that Word of God in language that individuals, say in English, could understand and obey, 
thankfully, we have translations. You and I, though we may not know Greek or Hebrew, we can pick up a Bible like this one and have access with full confidence in that which the Word of God has presented. And among those matters, we notice the beneficial, challenging, and weighty responsibility resting upon those who involve themselves in these work of translations. It was beyond that that we complemented many translations, at least in general. There's where we looked at Galatians 1.22 and saw several of the particular ways in which that verse was translated. Following that, we also looked interestingly at the next one, taken from Romans chapter 10, verse number 10. Looking at each one of them, as we give some thought to where you and I stand as we look at a various translation, be it the King James translation or the New American Standard or the English Revised Version, for example, all of them challenge us to realize the beneficial ideas often presented in some of these translations. You and I quickly noted last week that there's no perfect translation. That is to say, one will not find one that has no particular matters within it that might not be called into question, but rather one seeks to find one for which, let's say, the translation committee had that desire to handle it rightly, to handle it in a word-for-word -word translation philosophy, and to present what God's Word affirms, not what their own theology might have dictated. And so as we looked at each one of them, Last week, in comparison to those Greek passages, or the Hebrew passages as the case may be, we now stand on the precipice of looking at just exactly how some of these translation realities appear before us as we look at one or more of these translations. As we prepare ourselves to look more carefully at some of them, again, those slides came from last week as well. With them, might we proceed as follows now looking at some matters that come from them. If one were to ask about some of the translations that come before us, or even the history of translations, we really have not labored at length to describe some of the earliest translations other than to note the Septuagint. But however, in the early part, let's say, of the Common Era, it is to be noted that there were some rather notable translations there are times when I use the word notable that these, in fact, played a dramatic role in some of the later translations that would follow. And at times that also became to be a part of a problem. Maybe the most famous was a translation that took the original text into Latin. We might remember that Latin was the official language of the Roman Empire. And so, needless to say, there came a time when the Latin Vulgate... That is to say, a Latin translation was in fact made by a gentleman named Jerome. And that particular translation into Latin, again, came to be a very notable part of a number of the translations that were, were, that were to follow. We'll try to highlight some of those facts and features as we proceed through this lesson. But one of the dire problems that came in fact to be what you and I would likely call a catastrophe was this. As Catholicism gained the ascendancy, and the Scriptures, of course, at that time it was long before the printing press, and long before Xerox copy machines, and long before means by which the Scriptures could be readily and easily copied, or at least copies of it made. The only capabilities, of course, were to hand-make them. 
and thus to make copies tediously, carefully, and meticulously by hand. You can well imagine that that particular chore and challenge was certainly reserved for only a selected few. And even then, might we consider how long such a work would have taken. By most standards that I have read, it typically took a scribe one year to make one copy of the sacred text. You and I can imagine with that kind of output, copies of the Scriptures were rather difficult to come by. And certainly those that were available were far too expensive for a common individual to have owned. The only access was then by virtue of those available, let's say, in the churches of the day, when one would assemble and hear it read. Quite often we hear even today about reports when in that ancient era what copies there were were chained to the pulpit so that no one could take them home. Again, they were meant to be left there and what's more, there were other problems that arose. Those who were occupying the clergy, by and large it came to be that they felt that they had exclusive access to the sacred scriptures. They were the ones, let's say, who could read it out of that text and the common people couldn't. And so the common people were entirely in the position of relying upon them to share with them what the truth of God's Word said. Doesn't that pose a dramatic problem when in fact over the course of centuries Catholic doctrine came to be encumbered with a whole host of things that were unscriptural, be it the selling of indulgences, be it, for instance, paying off various other sundry matters. And isn't it true that the Catholic presentation over the course of a few hundred years came to bear little resemblance to what actually was stated in the Word of God. But yet, that's all the priests actually often read to the people, and that's all that they ever explained. That is a great problem, wasn't it? No wonder then, as you give thought to, the church clergy came to see the Scriptures as their property, and they fought difficultly and with great intensity to keep the Bible out of the hands of the common people. They did not want the common people to have copies of the Bible. As we'll see in just a moment, that led to what to you and me may seem almost unthinkable, but yet history records that it actually took place. As you and I give thought to the English translations, no doubt one of the first names that we would list was that of John Wycliffe. In fact, just a very brief statement about his efforts. It was he who oversaw, really from the years I'm able to determine, the first of the English translations. He was a skilled person, as I understand it, fluent in seven languages, including Hebrew and Greek. And as he produced then this English translation from those original texts, we notice he did though rely far too much in many ways on the Latin Vulgate. He didn't go back at least to the original text as often as he should have, simply relied on Jerome's translation. And one of the things to be noted is as he brought that forth in 1384, notice with me some of these comments. The Catholic Church was exceedingly unhappy about having such a translation. Again, they weren't interested in the common people having the Bible. Notice what they did to him. They so condemned his work of translation. You'll notice Pope Gregory the Eleventh, 
not only he, but several of the Catholic councils at that era in history overwhelmingly condemned the work of Wycliffe. And in fact, this was their sentence. They ordered the Bible that he produced to be burned. Burned, mind you. And not only that, as a final escapade toward their condemnation of him, they ordered his bones to be dug up and also burned in, public, in a public way. They again had such distaste for, and in fact such condemnation for, his efforts to simply try to bring the sacred scriptures to the common person that they went that far to do what you and I have just noted. Now, as that took place in 1428, you'll notice that a number of years transpired, but the sentence was eventually carried out. That brings us perhaps to the next one. William Tyndale, also a very skilled person in language, as he also set about to produce a translation, perhaps some thoughts concerning him and his translation might be in order. He produced now a better one in many regards because he was interested not so much in using the Vulgate as his guide, but to return to the Hebrew and as well to the Greek and to produce a translation again and make it available to the common person. I would ask you to note with me some interesting notes about Tyndale's efforts. First of all, in 1525, the New Testament, his arrangement thereof was brought forth. Not too many years later, the Old Testament also brought forth, again, 1525 and 1535 respectively. It should not be thought that he was approved any more than Wycliffe had been. At this time, the Catholic Church was still in the ascendancy. That was the recognized church, quite frankly. It had control over many governments. It had control, in fact, over many nations. Notice with me what befell him. He was able through many years to escape the thrust and the warrants on his life. But on one occasion, he actually fell prey to what appeared to him to be an innocent scheme. The church actually paid a particular set of those to make a dinner arrangement with Tyndale. And he simply thought he was meeting some friends for a nice friendly dinner one evening. He came to find out they kidnapped him that night. And as these authorities kidnapped him, you'll notice, they ultimately strangled and burned him at the stake. All for his desire to produce a translation, a copy of the Bible, so the common person can read it and have access to it. In fact, one would have to admire a bit of the brashness, I think, of Tyndale. For on one occasion, when asked about the nature from several authorities about the character of his work, he said, If the Lord spare my life, the day shall come when I will make a common plowboy in England to know more of the Scriptures than you do. He was well aware of the fact that what was often proclaimed and taught was a very small portion of the Word of God, but it was encumbered with a whole host of the speculative teachings of mankind. Tyndale knew it. And his life's mission and work was to produce a translation that the common person could read, understand, and obey. Thankfully, it came about. From the work of Tyndale, many, it seemed, in rather rapid fashion followed. The Miles Coverdale Bible, perhaps, is the one we might mention next. Oddly enough, those two previous ones that you and I had mentioned from Tyndale and Wycliffe, 
they, by the efforts of their translation, weren't thorough and complete as all of the Old Testament was included. But you'll notice Coverdale was able to succeed in that regard. An entire copy of the Bible in English became available due to his efforts in 1539. Now, interestingly enough, he apparently used quite a bit of the effort of Tyndale, and he completed that by and large and made available to the common person. Now, I say all of that also to help us also remember what some of the things could be said about the printing press by this time. I mentioned a few moments ago the printing press, at least by the time of the efforts of Wycliffe, had not been invented. But Johann Gutenberg had invented in the middle part of the 1400s the capability of producing movable type. And hence, one could now produce a Bible far quicker than simply that year-long version by hand. By the time we get to the Coverdale Bible and the others, now Bibles were able to be produced in mass number compared to what it had been before. In fact, the first thing to have rolled off the Gutenberg printing press was none else than a copy of the Bible. I've often thought that certainly was a providential effort on the part of God to lift the darkness of the Middle Ages and to make His precious and light-shining Word available one more time to the human family. And so it was. Following the Coverdale Bible in 1549, John Rogers made available what's called the Matthews Bible. The name may seem rather strange, for his name wasn't Matthew. He chose that name as a pseudonym, like Mark Twain had a pseudonym for Samuel Clemens, which was his actual name. He again was under great threat in his life in his attempt to make available this Bible, and so he went by this name that I've called the Matthew's Bible. Following that one, we notice that a notable group in Geneva, and one particular name, of course, should well be noted here, John Calvin. John Calvin was also rather skilled in language. He also made an effort to make available, at least here on the European continent, the greatness and the power of the Word of God. Sadly enough, though, in his exposition of it is where so many problems came. His teaching of faith only, which has been since that time the basis of the Presbyterian doctrine. Isn't it amazing that this particular Bible as one gives thought to the name by which it's more commonly known, it's often called the Breaches Bible. It came out in 1560. It's called the Breaches Bible because of the translation of one particular word occurring in Genesis chapter 3. Whereas you and I might read that God made Adam for Adam and Eve aprons, that translation read it Breaches, and ever since that time it's been called the Breaches Bible. Again, available 1560 through the efforts of those in, in the European continent, primarily in Switzerland. The Calvinistic translator's notes, to which I briefly commented there at the bottom, it was in the margin of some of these Bibles that Calvin made available that he, in fact, wrote the words faith only, as, for instance, beside Romans 3.28. And his problematic character with James chapter 2 it wasn't that the text ever made those statements. It was his exposition of them. And his codifying those in some of the documents and declarations that were to flow from his pen in years to follow. We should, of course, by no means think that Calvin met with no dissension when he wrote those things. 
the popularity of the Bible produced by that particular Geneva group only brings us to note some of these things. The Bishop's Bible followed not many years thereafter a revision of that great Bible that we'd mentioned earlier. Those revisions perhaps bring us to a whole flood of these which are now to follow. Perhaps not much needs to be said about some of these, but it's still possible to have access to the Dewey Reams translation. It, in fact, is one of the more common ones used in the Catholic Church today. In fact, my suspicion would be that if one were to, in fact, have access to some of the particular lethargies and passages read in the Catholic Church, some of them likely come from the Dewey Reams translation. Furthermore, we now come to the year 1611, the King James translation. Though we might not have known much about some of these previous ones listed, I'm sure we know a great deal about this one, at least by the name that's used to describe it. James was the gentleman who had ascended the throne in England. So much of the difficulties that had come upon Tyndale and Wycliffe had actually had their arrival from the country of England. England at that time wasn't so much known for the character of its interest in what was anything beyond Catholicism. However, when James came to the throne, amongst the infighting of the churches in that country, James at least made the open question to those gathered on the occasion from the bishops, what can be done to help settle and to remove some of the infighting, the strife, and the factions that have come to cloud the matters recognized in the church in that country? Now, frankly, some of the problems had arisen from the predecessors to James. There was, of course, a queen at that time. You and I, perhaps today, would know her better as Bloody Mary. She was Queen Mary. She, in fact, was a very ruthless queen. Many lost their lives under her rulership, and James was left to rectify some of the problems that she had brought upon the country, not the least of which was the mess that some of the churches had come to be in. As one gives thought then to the authorization of James, the bishop simply said to him, There are some who are choosing to make use of one kind of Bible. There are others in our country by numbers who are using others. One thing that might be done is to, in fact, set forth a translation on which all would be able to agree. James thought that was an excellent idea. And he thus commissioned the finest of the scholars available in that day to make available a translation of the Holy Scriptures. It's called the King James Translation uh, out of deference to the gentleman who gave the commissioning for it. And as you can see, some 47 scholars took part in the efforts of that work, tracing their way as nearly as possible to set forth a translation that would be respective of the originals. But we might notice along the way that some of that which they used was not always full reliance upon the original Hebrew and Greek. Some of these translations that had been made in the intervening years were actually used on several occasions as the basis for various passages and as the basis for some of those texts. Thankfully, there was, of course, a definitive scheme put in place by James himself in which there was cross-checking. One group would make a translation and then they would have to submit it to one of the other translating groups of the 47 before full agreement and compliance could be appreciated. Even then, it had to go to one final group 
to give its accordance and its agreement to the veracity of that text. In some of the earlier translations, there was that degree of cross-checking. At least to that degree, we must give appreciation to James and that thoroughness. But perhaps it certainly is wise to comment that James succeeded, or maybe we should say the translators did, for that translation became the definitive translation of the English-speaking world for well over 250 years. Certainly as one thinks about the number of copies of it that have come to exist, the number of ways it has appeared throughout the centuries, it really was not until 1881 and in the years to follow in 1885 that any serious revision of it, as nearly as I'm able to tell, was undertaken. At this time it did come to be realized that the work of two gentlemen was such that they came to decide the time had come for a desirable revision because other manuscripts, older and perhaps more authoritative, had been discovered. Some of the elements of the English language had changed in those intervening years so that words didn't have the same meanings that they had had in 1611. All of that does lead me to comment that the desire of Westcott and Hort to produce this updated rendition, though it did become some degree of popularity, it never replaced the King James translation. And perhaps finally, there is to be noted that some American translators were somewhat unhappy with some of the renditions to be found in that Westcott and Hort translation of 1881 and four years later, 1885. It was an understood thing in the discussions that after a set number of years transpired, the American translators would then be free to set forth and offer their own translation, a revised one that in fact became the American Standard Version of 1901. You'll notice that 20 years elapsed between 1881 and and rather 1901. And with that coming of the 20 years, we then see the American Standard translation came forth on that year and on that occasion. Many of the other translations that one might discuss as following, we've looked at in due course already in the series. The Revised Standard Translation of 1946 and then 1952. The New American Standard Translation not many years thereafter as well as a whole host of those others. But this brief history perhaps does shine the spotlight on the rather interesting historical setting and some of the efforts and labors that passed along the element of time to bring about the English translation of the Bible. What about again the efforts of William Tyndale and the efforts of John Wycliffe? Burned at the stake on one occasion, openly lost their lives on both occasions, simply because of their love for the Word of God and their desire for the human family to have ready access to it. Today, in many ways, we can be thankful to all of their efforts in their desire to present the truth and nothing more or less in that regard to the Word of God. In that text that Lucas read earlier from 2 Thessalonians 3.14, it was on that occasion Paul said, "...if any man obey not our word..." The Word of God is meant to be obeyed, isn't it? And that obedience certainly requires that one have access to a trustworthy and reliable Bible, one that does present that which is the Word of God. It's a self-evident statement, isn't it, that one cannot, cannot obey that of which one does not have access. 
Thankfully, you and I have that reliable and ready Bible that we can study and read from and meditate upon, as we noted from Psalm 119, verse 15. This evening, as you give thought to these, and as we look in succeeding weeks at various translations, giving note not only to the time frame, 1611 was when that King James translation first came forth. What has changed since then? Do various words in English mean the same then that they do now? If not, may that cause us concern. Are there other matters that should be brought forth? We'll turn our attention to matters like that, looking at some intensity and in some relation to them as the succeeding weeks come before us. This evening, as we examine our lives, each and every one of us, may we begin by noting that we should boast not thyself of tomorrow, for thou knowest not what a day may bring forth. This world may end tomorrow. Even if it doesn't, you and I may not be alive to experience it. Today, indeed, is that day to which we should turn our attention to matters eternal and matters divine. Are you a child of God tonight? We're all children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. Has your faith led you to this point to obedience? If it's not, your faith isn't complete. In fact, your faith to this point is a dead one. James 2 verse 17. If tonight we could be of assistance to you by some means in public response... Initially, the waters of baptism are are prepared and ready. If you have become a member of the body of Christ, but at this point you know that you're not faithful, recognize Jesus right now is somewhat with forlorn eyes looking upon you. And He's asking why. What good reason can you offer for not coming publicly and confessing error and confessing sin and letting Him forgive you of all that? and welcoming you into open fellowship with Him again. There's no good reason for remaining without. If tonight we could be of assistance to you, we'd be happy to pray with you, and we'd be honored to pray for you. If we can do that, realize it's not because that I might have said so, but because this book has said so. That is the second law of pardon, 1 John 1, verses 5-7. through And if we could be of assistance to you this evening, why not tonight and why not now? While together we stand and while we sing.